What's going on? This is Cognima. Be sure to subscribe to my channel if you haven't already, because subscribing makes you feel good. <laughs> W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Soyuz 017 FET via the Avitis MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. That's right, there is a new mic on the boom, folks, and it looks like a spaceship. And speaking of rockets, on the show today, it's Grace Helbig, who shot to fame as a YouTube creator and Grace's insights about that period of her life and how it has shaped her into the person that she is today are really fascinating. And we'll talk more about those in a second. First, I want to say, as always, thank you to all of you who, one, have been listening, but two, who have been listening to our new uh, Midnight Disease addendum, the Friday show. Little announcement there. I have realized, uh, you know, I had this thought in my head, like, where did I get the idea to call it the Friday show? Turns out I ripped it off from Mark Marin, who does a Friday show for his WTF Plus subscribers, which, of course, I am one. I am a white male in my 40s. Of course, I subscribe to Marin's bonus content. Uh, I love Mark Marin. Anyway, um, I don't think I should rip off his nomenclature for my programming, though. That doesn't really feel like a fitting tribute. And so I have decided to change the name of the Friday show to... Dingmantics. I'm pretty sure that one is not taken. I'm telling you that so that uh, if you have been listening to those Friday shows, when you see Dingmantics pop up in your feed this Friday, you won't be concerned, confused, or annoyed. I don't know. Whatever emotion I'm worried you might have, I'm hoping that me saying this will prevent that from happening. I also want to remind you that, as always, you can email me your thoughts on anything that you hear on the show at walt.fm. And that reminder feels especially important this week because my guest on the show today gets really real about things that are, in my opinion, not talked about enough, specifically being quote-unquote authentic on the internet. Something that I, as you're listening to my voice right now, that is something that I am trying to do, is be my authentic self. And I'm sure it won't surprise you to know that I have recorded this intro six or seven times. You're listening right now, and it's like minute four or five. Uh, on the recorder, it's minute 18, because I keep stopping and starting, because I don't feel like I sound like myself. I don't feel like I'm being charming enough, relatable enough. Um, you know, I have these thoughts in my head, like, did I say enough about the microphone? Is it going to be weird that I just left it hanging there, that uh, I didn't go into more detail about the microphone? All of these thoughts are running through my head, because this is currency on the internet, right? This idea 
that it is a place to just be yourself and that on the internet that can be enough and that if you can find the right container for that, you can connect with people. And so as I sit here and record, no matter how many podcast episodes I have made, I have this constant inner monologue running about whether or not I am doing that effectively. Now, one of the people who defined the moment at which the Internet became a place for that kind of expression is my guest on the show today, Grace Helbig. I first met Grace Helbig when we were both studying improv comedy at the People's Improv Theater here in New York City. And I admired Grace for a bunch of reasons. One, she was always really, really funny in improv comedy scenes with her comedy group, which was called Borealis. But the thing about improv is that it is literally the study of the group mind. This is something that is talked about in improv class. There is this idea that it is um, at the People's Improv Theater, the teams were eight people. There is this idea that uh, to perfect improv, you were trying to get eight people to think with, with one brain. And there was this idea that you were serving the craft of improv more than you were serving your own creative vision. You were showing up for the sacred kind of fleeting, ephemeral magic that can happen when eight people are improvising comedic theater together. And that's all very well and good. But if you were a person like me, and you had a little bit more of a writerly sensibility, a little bit more of a storyteller sensibility, there was a way in which it felt like you had to give up a piece of yourself in the name of serving the ephemeral improv gods. And it felt sort of like a loss in some way. And what was so cool to me about Grace is that I knew that in addition to being able to do what is necessary to do to be really good at improv, she had this whole other life, which is that she was a professional comedian on the internet. And what it what it meant that Grace was a professional comedian on the internet is that she was one of the first vloggers. Like I think almost literally before the word vlog was invented. We're talking back in 2007. Grace had started posting these videos of herself on the internet where it was just her in her apartment sitting at her computer and she had this persona, this very endearing slightly socially awkward, sort of mystified by the demands of adult life and pop culture, um, tenuous relationship with alcohol, not in an intense or scary way, just more in that sort of early 20s way where you're like, life is hard and weird. Maybe if we have a couple drinks and joke around, we'll all just feel a little better. <laughs> it, it, her videos really captured that energy particularly well, I thought. But she made videos about all kinds of things, uh, sketches, parody songs, all sorts of stuff, characters that she played. But it was all rooted in this persona that was ostensibly her. And critically, in addition to writing and performing these videos, Grace was also making these videos. 
she was shooting and editing them and posting them online. And eventually she got noticed by this website called My Damn Channel, who hired her to do this for a living. She would post videos every day. It was a video series called Daily Grace. And for a while, these videos were just on the My Damn Channel website. And then they became so popular that when they put them on YouTube... Grace was, if memory serves, one of the first YouTube channels to surpass a million subscribers. And eventually, Grace left My Damn Channel and started just releasing these videos herself. Same type of video, just without the affiliation with My Damn Channel. And they became even more popular. Her, her own YouTube channel went past 2 million subscribers. Grace was a certifiable sensation. And this was at a time when the idea of millions of people watching a YouTube channel, culturally, we, were, we, could, we could not really believe that that was a thing. Nowadays, of course, it's very common for people's social media channels to have millions of subscribers. But Grace was not only one of the first people to have that experience, but because of that, she sort of helped define what the sensibility that is appealing in that content ecosystem is. And what's really remarkable is that though the quality of her equipment improved over the years from those earliest videos that she put up in 2007, um, the persona and the character that she played stayed sort of fixed. She really understood what it was about this character that she was playing that connected with people. And eventually, her work was so popular that... She became not just an extraordinarily successful video creator. She became a television host. She had her own talk show on E! Entertainment Television. She published a couple of books. Um, and then she was in movies and, and TV shows. And it all originated from this thing that she made herself. And as you might imagine, at a certain point, the combination of the fame that this had brought her and the dedication that it took to continue to do that at a very high level, it all became a little too much for Grace to manage. And I remember noticing last year that she had put up this episode of her podcast. She has a couple of podcasts. Uh, this one in particular that I'm about to talk about is called Not Too Deep, and it ran for many years. She put up this episode that she said was probably going to be the last episode. And it was a bit of a sign-off where she said, in so many words, I don't really know why I'm doing this anymore. And I need to step away and get back in touch with myself and come to an understanding of how this whole journey has impacted my life. And I was fascinated by that because we live in a culture that so sanctifies the journey that Grace has been on. And there are not very many people who have made it as far in the journey as she made it. And so for her to have the self-awareness to recognize that this might not be the most healthy chapter <laughs> for her, and do something proactive about it and engage with the people who had helped her get to the point that she was at directly about that reality, I found 
really striking, really admirable, and to be something that made me really want to talk to her. And so I reached out, and I was very grateful that she said yes. Now, if you know Grace's work, you know that uh, there has recently been another big development in her life. And it hadn't happened yet, or at least she had not been public about it at the time that we spoke. And if you're a fan of Grace's work, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not, uh, just wait until after the interview and you'll know what I mean. But for now, I invite you to listen to the insight and seemingly limitless good humor and self-awareness of the wonderful Grace Helbig on WALT. Grace Helbig, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am so interested to talk to you um, about many things, but um, in particular, I was so compelled by the, I guess, I don't know if it's technically the last episode, but the the last episode for now of Not mm-hmm. Too Deep. Um, yeah. Where you spoke so compellingly about the place that you have arrived at in your relationship with your artistry and creativity and how the fact that that artistry and creativity has largely unfolded on the internet has complicated that relationship. And I know that you are also studying... Uh, creativity and psychology as part of your current uh, graduate work. Um, yeah. What brought you to the point of realizing that you needed to post that that episode? Well, thank you for watching and listening to that. I think um, I've, I, I'm still, as much as that might have been posted maybe a year ago or so at this point, mm-hmm. I still feel very much connected and in that kind of place of uncertainty yeah. about my relationship with creativity. Um, I've I've been making content online for now 15 years, um, which is very surreal and hard to kind of process because in the beginning it wasn't even expected that that would be an actual like viable career path, yeah. and so you kind of already go into it with this just like unconscious like here we go, all right just go, go, go. And we're making it and we're in these creative flow states. And oh, this is awesome. And then when you start to feel that it's not so awesome, it's like a wild uh, reckoning that I very much resisted. And we give it all these terms like burnout, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. like post hustle culture. And I do think that is a large part of what brought me to realizing that I just needed to make a change, but not knowing what that was. And I'm such a creature of certainty. I mean, it's like the core of my anxiety. It's just the (laughs) fear of not knowing or fear of not um, uh, having a clear path or goal or motivation. And it's so different than, you know, you and I met years and years ago through this improv comedy facility that is 
founded on this principle of like, yes, and just like saying yes to the uncertainty and going with it. And I feel like that was such a pivotal and crucial thing that helped me get into this like wild internet world of content. Mm -hmm. But when you get to a point where you're like saying yes, still isn't like connecting for me. Like there's something I think maybe a little bit bigger than burnout that's happening here. And I've always been really interested in psychology. And I think obviously for a lot of people that get into comedy, it's kind of a byproduct that you're just studying the human condition mm-hmm. in yourself and in others all the time. Yes. And so I was kind of confronted with this like, oh, I'm putting on this external shit, part of my language out into the world. I haven't done any like internal stuff mm-hmm. right now. And my internal stuff feels very uh empty where's my soul in all of this yeah and and that was a very like scary thing because you resist it so much especially in the pace of which we like create and consume creative endeavors Mm -hmm. you're kind of conditioned to just like go and keep up and keep watching and keep inputting outputting inputting outputting Mm -hmm. and there's this like fear of slowing down there's this fear of stopping, yes. uh, which is probably also why I never said that this is the final episode yeah, of right. Not Too Deep. I'm like, it's just for now. <laughs> just for now, I still guys. can't commit. Yeah. I can't commit to it being over indefinitely. And so I, I found this program at Pacifica Graduate Institute um, that's called uh, Depth Psychology and Creativity. And I wanted to study um, psychology a little bit more, but I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. And I didn't want to work in advertising. I didn't want to work in HR, which seemed to be the only avenues. And this was one that kind of, yeah, promoted that you can learn about creativity and also some depth psychological like ideas and really sort of like do a lot of introspection. Yeah. You just said so many things that I want to follow up on, but one of them sure. is... Um, you're touching on something that I also heard you reference. I listened to your episode with Mayim Bialik. Um, and you yeah. said this thing in that episode that I've never heard anybody say about improv before. And that is so important, which is that improv rewards you for ignoring your self-awareness in in these mm. ways. Where you were saying, you know, the whole culture of improv is like, just say yes. Just just say yes to what's happening. Just go with it. Just get in the flow. Don't overthink. Don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, you know, the recognition that there are, in a purely creative sense, exciting things that can come out of that, what you said in the interview is that what that's basically doing is encouraging you to disregard your anxiety, to to push right. it to the side in the name of satisfying something else, which the accumulation of that impulse over time is very, very detrimental. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a way in which, because I also really agree that um, you were talking about uh, improv and comedy as this kind of odd psychological forum where you're using yourself... um, and so you're you're sort of like subject and analyst at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're subject and object all at once. <laughs> yes. And I wonder it that one of the reasons I was really interested to hear you speak about this is because I remember meeting you all those years ago when you were you were the first person I had ever met who had turned comedy into a job. Um you had just started at 
uh, my damn channel and you mm-hmm. were making these vlogs. And I mm-hmm. remember having this little ping in my head that you had gotten a job in comedy, which was amazing, and that you had done it by being yourself. Yeah. And we were in this community where it, it it's a very performative love to everybody involved, but not super self-aware. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear you. Cohort of people. And it seemed to me at that time that you had cracked the code in some way. Oh. And what was revelatory for me in listening to your Not Too Deep episode and to what you've just said is that that's not what actually what was actually going on. It, it's that you were putting a version of yourself out there and then there is this preliminary reward that can come from mm-hmm. that in terms of audience, um, people keying into the fact that you are being somewhat vulnerable, you are revealing something. But that that doesn't necessarily mean you're in dialogue with yourself and that sometimes the reward that you get from that can feel like actual connection with yourself when it isn't. Sam, you just hit the nail on the head of (laughs) everything that I continue to contemplate from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to sleep. Mm -hmm. So in this graduate program, uh, we learn a lot about uh, C.G. Jung and the idea of the unconscious Mm -hmm. and a lot of these like archetypal energies, these patterns of behavior that kind of move through us and that we are connect that are constantly trying to be in dialogue with us consciously that we can either bury or acknowledge in our unconscious. And one of the big kind of um, uh, key points that I started to like really hone in on in learning about this was this idea of persona. Mm. And it's become this thing I'm like hyper fixated on right now because I started to learn about this. You know, we all understand persona as like this mask that we wear and especially in creative endeavors where you yourself are like the product and and the person Mm -hmm. and the puppet in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways that it's like, oh, I just put this on and I do my job and then I take it off and I'm with, you know, people in the real world or whatever. And online, there, especially in the beginning years of YouTube and content creation, this idea of authenticity was so, um, you know, it's so revered and it's so, it's like, it's the key ingredient to success online was um, creating, uh, you know, offering your authentic self to an audience. Mm -hmm. And that's really what initially challenged traditional media is because we have all these actors and actresses playing parts and they're getting rewarded for it. Suddenly we have this influx of artists and creatives online who are just being themselves and getting equally, if not more, rewarded for it. And so you start to kind of identify with this version of yourself that in your head is like, oh, this is my authentic self. This is Mm -hmm. what's resonating with people. This is what's connecting with people as I'm this awkward introvert that loves to be at home and make these silly little videos. And that feels real to people, Uh more real than me getting cast on like 30 Rock or SNL or something. Mm -hmm. And that it is beautiful and super rewarding. And then I started to realize over the years that I was kind of stuck in this persona. I felt very trapped hmm. in this thing that once made me feel so free and so connected to myself. And it's a very slippery slope, especially when that becomes like your bread and butter, literally. My, my job is to be this 
person, this version of myself. And so it creates this distance between who I actually am, because I'm still in this disillusion that this is me. I'm just being myself. I'm just being my authentic self. But that leave that left me with like no room to grow. I felt this sense mm -hmm. of like arrested development in my emotional state, in my relationships, and especially this like I started to feel very like resentful of trying to create from a place of a, a version of myself that I was like unconsciously like trying to outgrow or trying to evolve from, but I was like white knuckling myself to stay connected to this because this is the thing that's given me opportunities and success and communication and community. And that is a very like confronting uh, thing to have to go through. And I, I'm still like in the process of it. And I find it extraordinarily fascinating because I think more than ever with the way that we present ourselves online, whether you're a comedian or whether you're just, you know, a teacher trying to post some stuff online uh, to an audience that there's a very performative aspect that comes with it just inherently mm -hmm. we are curating ourselves for the enjoyment of other people for the connection with other people and i kind of spent the last few years and i'm still working on like what is my relationship to that part of me because mm -hmm. it's not just the mask i can take off and throw away and put in the garbage and then go there we go all done problem solved right. like it is a part of me that's integrated and i just have to figure out um the the relationship that I have to it rather than its relationship over me. Right. And um, it's been a very interesting road. And like I said, I'm still in it and my ideas kind of evolve every day. And I'm doing some writing on this topic itself because I, I think obviously social media isn't going anywhere. And so this is just becoming more enmeshed and embedded in the way that we create and exist online. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very it's all very interesting, but it's a little chaotic at the same time. <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, it's so fascinating this idea of you you sort of created this persona of a person who I I mean, if you will permit me, like you you created yeah. this persona that was like. I'm a little bit of a mess. I'm I'm, I'm trying to figure mm -hmm. things out. Um, and then you sort of, you've kind of like professionally yoked yourself to a persona that people don't want to have change. Um, yeah. And the amount of tension, and, and to have done that at, at such an early stage in your professional career, because I think mm -hmm. it, you started My Damn Channel when you were like in your early 20s 22 right? 23 yeah right yeah. out of college and it it still was a job where the internet was a very taboo uh place mm -hmm. so i felt like it was my secret work that i was doing i was trying <laughs> to go to the improv theater and perform as much as i could in the hopes that there'd be some random casting director mm -hmm. in an audience that mm -hmm. would hand me a golden ticket yeah. and then i'd secretly go back to my apartment and be like oh i'm finally in my safe space but no one can really know about about this and then it it blows up and uh it becomes this challenge and this just constant like tension between these two traditional and new media worlds yeah the other thing that i feel like you are articulating that again i've never really heard anybody express is cuz one of the things that you say that i think is really important in that not too deep episode is you say um 
you talk about how, like, your soul feels damaged by social media, Mm. which to me is a very critical difference than saying my soul feels damaged by art, my soul feels damaged by creativity, my soul feels damaged by comedy. And you actually explicitly Mm. say, I want those things to continue to be a part of my life. And you made me realize, maybe other people have thought about this, and it, it just hadn't occurred to me that we don't often think about you know, there's a lot of stories that have come out in the last few years about how damaging and corrupting and toxic an environment a literal comedy club can be. Um, mm-hmm. And the bad things that can be byproducts of the fact that to have a career in comedy, you have to go to this place where a certain combination of ego and patriarchy and sexism um, can create all of these toxic outcomes. But the Internet is a comedy club of its own. Um, Yeah. And it felt like you were sort of talking about this is you're you're living the byproducts of doing the thing you love in a place that isn't healthy. Is that am I clocking that? Yeah. Yeah. I I have a lot of different because. Obviously, when I when I first heard to have a what we could call a little bit of an identity crisis uh, <laughs> and, it, you know, interpersonal emotional breakdown of if, sorts if over you many will, years. If you will. Um, yeah. When I uh, spent years denying and years uh, then confronting and feeling equally <laughs> confused that I, my immediate response is just like social media sucks. It's bad. It's going to break everyone. It's going to hurt everyone. And then I started to realize that's that's. Not true. It's, uh, it, these are all tools, mm-hmm. right? That we can use um, uniquely and and nuanced uh, in nuanced ways. And it's really up to the individual user, consumer, creative. And that my experience of feeling this sudden like betrayal by this system that you know once made me feel so safe um, came down to like realizing that it was it's an independent me uh and the way that i was unconsciously sort of falling into these very easy ego traps online you Mm. you slowly start to you can realize that like oh i'm doing this for external validation in ways that are not healthy it's not about the creative idea that i have that i'm really proud of i'm worried about these numbers and uh, i'm worried about making sure that the, the people that expect something are, are happy and i'm that is now when that becomes your motivation versus the art and the the humor becoming your motivation that's like a very um mm-hmm. uh shitty place to be in and i think yeah. it because we're so inundated with numbers and we're so inundated with data around everything, mm-hmm. people that have built really successful brands and businesses online are using those tools in a way that's effective for the goals and the, the outcomes that they want. Um, when you're not taking stock of your relationship and, and your use of these resources and tools, I think that's when we get into a tricky territory Mm -hmm. and my kind of biggest revelation uh is that you know my experience isn't universal to everyone but i think the experience of being able to zoom out and look at yourself and 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 the way that you interact um in communities online and the way that you're using these tools is just only going to become more and more important for every creative 
that's putting themselves out there online. You know, we have all of these articles now about burnout and digital detoxes constantly. And we're, I think, only starting to scratch the surface of yeah. the psychological byproducts of this sort of internet communication and existence. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I've really become very aware of the necessity of just checking in on yourself, mm -hmm. like really making sure that the way you're using these tools makes the tools make sense and that the tools aren't using you, which is, I think, what when I let go, uh, when I was just kind of, you know, unconsciously just trying to keep up, I realized that I was like now overwhelmed and letting these things kind of use me versus I was using them. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just balancing that relationship and every person's is completely unique to themselves. Totally. But you're, I mean, one of my favorite soapboxes is I hate... Not to sound like an uh, old, but um, mm -hmm. I can't stand, you know, Siri, Alexa, um, all those voice-activated yeah. digital assistants because to me it seems so obvious that they are not there to assist you. You are assisting the platform that developed them mm. in more successfully marketing products to you and closing its walls <laughs> around mm -hmm. you so that you can only interact in its ecosystem. Um, yeah. Because it's not like you can say to, like you can't say to uh, Alexa, uh, play this album, I have it on Spotify. She'll be like, what? You know? Or maybe you can, <laughs> but it's like there's, inter inter there's intermediation between that. Um, it mm -hmm. wants you to do everything in its ecosystem. Um, yeah. And you say a much more profound thing, um, again, in your episode, where you say, like, perhaps it is not a coincidence that we call the Internet a net. <laughs> like, yeah. this is something, or, or the World Wide Web, like, these are things we use to catch prey. Um, yeah. And Yeah, there's a lot of, like, symbolism when you zone out a little bit. All of the temporal aspects, too, of, like, Instagram and, like, all of the TikTok, all of these things that remind you that, like, efficiency is of the essence mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of these, like, different sort of, like, even on your phone, every app is this little box. So mm -hmm. it's, like, it keeps you confined in these spaces and it can be... Uh, like when you start to look at like the metaphors and the poetry behind it, you're like, oh, this is all entrapment. Okay, mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you think you could say, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit just now, but what mm -hmm. are some ways that you feel like your creative voice was that, that over time you started to mold it to the tools rather than using the tools to express what you wanted to express? I think one of the things that I have always had resistance to and never, it just was, it, I don't know, well, I do know why, I, like the data, there's so many analytics, there's so much, and I remember when the more YouTube rolled out, literally you can see the exact second that someone stops watching your video, and I remember Whoa. like thinking, how oh, is that helpful? That makes me feel sad. I don't want to see that. But for people like Mr. Beast, for example, who's like the biggest content creator on the platform, who's made a very clear mission to be the biggest content creator on the platform and to do it for good, he is someone that studies religiously the analytics because he sees it as 
the the uh, like uncovering the formula necessary to get to the clear and decisive goal that he's created for himself um that kind of stuff always bogged me down because it distracted me from what i believed to be for me the the most uh holy grail element which was to make people laugh i just mm -hmm. wanted to make people laugh i didn't mm -hmm. want to see when they stopped watching me because that would just hurt obviously my ego <laughs> uh and then all, also with the, the sudden, um, you know, introduction of all these new platforms, like it was not just making content for YouTube. Now I have to make content for YouTube and for Twitter and for Instagram. And now what's this TikTok thing? Oh, that's music. I don't do music. Okay, I don't have to worry about that one. Whew, thank God. It was just like, <laughs> now we have to keep up in right. these systems. And I think I never, I realized after the fact that I never wanted to build a big, massive like production house. I, di I didn't want to create this big company thing. I But the trajectory was like, that's the next thing. You have to say yes to the next thing. You have to keep growing. You have to keep going. You have to keep riding this wave. And I didn't want to look at the tension that that caused in me. And I think consciously and unconsciously, I started to say no to things. And I started to just feel like very burnout on content. So I started to like create less mm -hmm. but i i didn't really do the work of figuring out like why i was like afraid of doing things um and within the last couple of years i've been able to realize like oh it's because i just needed like something inside of me was saying like take a step back from this you're overwhelmed and you don't have to keep up with all of these things but because all of the other content creators are it's the blessing and the curse is that we have access to all of these other people that are seemingly creating effortlessly and growing uh, mm -hmm. in such beautiful ways for themselves. And then you feel this like attack on yourself of, I got to keep up with them. I have to keep up with them. Right. And again, all of these like time things and just the keeping up was keeping me so um, anxious that I couldn't even have, I didn't have access to any creative thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt like, oh God, my flow state's gone. The well is was dry. I'll never be funny again. I'll never be creative again. Um, and just went to worst case scenario. So being able to just realize that taking a step back won't kill you mm -hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it won't uh, destroy anything other than maybe your ego a little bit and maybe your ego needs to be taken down a peg so you can actually see what's going on <laughs> around and figure sure. out what kind of content you like will feel proud of. It, it's really profound. Like what what you're talking about is this move away from the push to kind of empire build. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's almost like you, you have you, and I think a lot of creators probably resonate with what you're saying. Is like you get a little bit of success doing one thing, and then from all sides you get this onslaught of people saying like, "Well, don't you want to dominate mm -hmm. the entire ecosystem?" Yeah. and when you, when you say like, nope, I just want to make people laugh. <laughs> I know. And that's the thing I could never get myself to actually say out loud. It was just this, you know, again, that like uh, improv mentality. I'll say yes. I'll say yes. I'll say yes. yes. I'll say yes. I'll say yes. But with no real like plan for myself. Mm -hmm. And then saying yes is like my bandwidth is at zero. And now what I'm creating, I'm not even being present for because I'm just trying to keep up with all of the plates that are spinning around me. And I probably would be a better plate spinner if I didn't spin plates and I just sat it down and put a dinner on it and ate off of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Plenty more to come with Grace Helbig right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One of my favorite things I heard you say in an interview um, is you talked about this very early memory. I'll let you tell the story. Uh, okay. Of being in the um, being in the back of like your, your family's Jeep Grand Cherokee, and oh yeah, and doing your... like a Cartman impression. Yes, yes. Can you tell yeah. that story? Yeah. So I grew up with brothers, and they were all the most hilarious various people uh, I, I'd ever experienced. And my older brother and older stepbrother were like four and six years older than me. So they were best friends and closer in age. And we would watch like Monty Python and we'd watch like growing up, like I didn't, we didn't watch like kids programming <laughs> and, uh, and we'd watch SNL every weekend. And so like comedy without me being aware of it was like the thing that we all communicated on. And they would make films in college together, like very Monty Python, Esque, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we got into watching South Park, and my older brothers were always cracking jokes and making each other laugh. And we were on a family trip, and I was sitting in the very back of the car with all the luggage, um, <laughs> as I do. Personal choice; it was much more fun okay, to sit all okay. the way in the back. It's not that you were being uh, treated like luggage. <laughs> no, it wasn't that the girl sits in the back and all the boys go up front. No, right, I was right. like, please put me in the very back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. We were ta- they were making jokes about South Park, and I started to do a Cartman impression of like Kenny's cream corn, and <laughs> they started laughing, and I'd never made them laugh before. I think uh. I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade, maybe, and it was just that you felt that first time you make someone laugh, and someone that you think is so funny, uh. it was just like a light bulb went on, like a switch flipped. Like there is it was the no most in- drug that powerful. Right. It was the most intoxicating feeling of all time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I just did this impression again and again and again <laughs> until like, eventually the laughter stopped. But it was that first like very vivid, visceral feeling of like, this is all I want to feel. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of and they're having they're enjoying it mm-hmm. to bring someone that level of like joy yeah. is so like that's you just chase that mm-hmm. then i think all comedians have that pinpointed moment where they're like this is like 
such a powerful exchange mm -hmm. and then you just want to chase that as as hard and as fast and as furious as you can <laughs> absolutely absolutely well you one of the things i love about that story is i mean you're literally in the car sequestered <laughs> away from everybody else and then you do this thing and all of a sudden you're connected all of a sudden you're a part of mm -hmm. the dynamic and um i don't want to assume that this is the sensation you experience with your anxiety. But my own relationship to anxiety is I'm on the outside. I'm on the outside. I'll never be on the inside. Yes. And yes. one of the things that was so powerful about my own experience with a story like yours is it was like, this is how you get in. This is the key that opens the door. Yeah. Yeah. And that was when I first started doing comedy at the People's Improv Theater and you, you find a sense of community there that is really beautiful, especially in improv communities because we all have to work together. It's not as competitive as like I imagine traditional stand-up communities are. And that's kind of why I really never got into doing stand-up was just because that world felt so um, aggressive and uh, competitive and that was not how I operated. Um, and that's really the first initial beauty of the internet was that it provided this sense of community among other people that felt very other mm -hmm. uh, in their normal lives. It felt like this safe space where we could literally connect with each other from the safety of our own homes or wherever we are and still feel that sense of connection through comedy mm -hmm. but we're all like in our own little places yeah and it was the thing that initially that that's the reason people thought the internet was so stupid like look at these little kids in their basement like <laughs> how dumb is that when really for all the dumb kids in their basement we were like look at this yeah this is just for us this is so great yeah and then you have all in the early stages of it all of the content creators were working together so similarly mm -hmm. to an improv community where it was really high tides raise all ships like we are better as collaborators than we are as competitors. Mm -hmm. And it was this incredible like fostering and appreciation of everyone's creative endeavors in all genres of, you know, science and comedy and vlogging and beauty and uh, travel mm -hmm. and all these things. Um, it was this really beautiful melting pot and it really, really did foster a sense of community that I think just for like the human experience is so important to just feel some essence of you belong. Yes, uh, it, that's so true. And I mean, y you told a story on, you were on, I think, the first episode of Ear Biscuits. W you were the guest. Yeah. And you there's this exchange between you and Rhett and Link where you talk about um, they had you be in like a video for a comedy song that they... Christmas sweats. Christmas yeah. sweats. <laughs> and you... The way you guys talk about it, it, it's so illustrative of the point you're making because they're saying to you, you're, you say to them, like, oh, I didn't really know you guys that well. And I was like, do mm -hmm. they know that I'm not really a singer? And mm -hmm. they were like, no, that's why we wanted you is because you do these little sing-song segments in your videos. And we were like, that, that'll be part of it is that she kind of yeah. gestures at singing. And it's so inclusive uh, of who you were discovering yourself to be as a performer. And it was mm -hmm. this exercise mm -hmm. in collaboration that was good for both of your channels. And um, yeah. that really was yeah, a special that, time. 
<laughs> it would I mean, and that's what anytime I talk to other creators like from those early days, we're all like, Oh man, those were the really the good old days yeah, before yeah. it got all messy with business and marketing <laughs> strategies. <laughs> and I think that was kind of the the beauty of it is that it was this incredibly organic mm. um platform and community space where people were so excited to acknowledge each other and to shout out each other. And it's so wild to think back and be like, the amount of times I went to a complete stranger's house with a camera, just because I felt the goodwill that yeah. we are creating together mm -hmm. is ridiculous to think about. <laughs> but it's just like, you message some person, you're like, I like what you do. I like what you do. Okay, here's my address. I'll see you on Tuesday. Okay, sounds great. Awesome. Yeah. And it was this, it was, it was all so pure and it was all really yeah. based on just like, we're in this together, whatever this is. None of us really knew, even though Rhett and Link, I think, were wise beyond their years and were able to see the scope of everything and yes. still are to this day. They're, They're a testament to like true integrity in uh, content creation. And I, old I just souls. love everything old that they souls. do. Old souls and really just haven't wavered in their in their authenticity mm -hmm. and their mm -hmm. um their respect of the work that they do it's really incredible but so in terms of this authenticity and the sort of organicness of it another thing that really comes through in listening to you in some of your early conversations with fellow creators is that you in addition to being a really like naturally funny person, a gifted performer. Um, you also had this kind of secret weapon, which was that you knew how to edit. Um, Ish. I knew how to edit in the style that I edited in. <laughs> yeah. But it allowed you, it seems to me, to start putting videos up right away that had a voice that was coming from the same place as the actual words and characters and stuff that you were playing is mm -hmm. it was the way the video was assembled was as much was emanating from you just as much as the material that you were doing. Yeah. And I think that was for a lot of content creators at the time, like we all sort of, none of us had a playbook or, yeah. you know, blueprints on how to structure or build a brand. None of us knew that we were even brand building at the time. Right. I think through all of the conversations that we started to have on different panels and at different conventions, we all sort of, it was this real collective growth psychologically and creatively of understanding what we were all doing and mm -hmm. being able to articulate it to each other and to audiences to the point that that then became blueprints and that became playbooks of how to do things. And in that was also what made the content feel authentic is that you could tell that this creator has sat down with their hands and put their mark and their stamp on how to edit this. Like yeah. Hannah Hart, who did My Drunk Kitchen for so long, she edited every single, she got herself drunk, she got herself to cook, <laughs> and she edited all of her footage of it. And audiences knew this was like a labor of love from her to an audience. It wasn't given to someone else to try and figure out how to manipulate it to show who she was to other people. And that was really the blessing in being able to create online. And it added to like the freedom that I found there versus going on auditions and being told by casting directors, the way you are is a no for me. Yeah. And then you go to the internet and they're like, the way you are is a yes for us. And so of course uh, you're like, this yeah. space is a little bit better than that other space. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I think that's what a lot of content creators, um, the the people that I think are truly innovative and, and speaking of Rhett and Link, they've done so well is really understand their style and continue to evolve their style. But you know that it's like, regardless of how big their business is or how many people are working for them, it feels like it's still coming directly from them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a tension kind of lurking in the background here that I, I would be interested in getting your take on, which is yeah. one of the thing one of the other things that's profound to me about your Cartman story is that you find this vector of connection, but the way you find it is by doing an impression of somebody else. Yeah. You know? Um and it makes me think also of, and forgive me if I'm getting the details wrong, but I think you said once that a big turning point for you with My Damn Channel was uh, you started doing this Sarah Palin impression and that it was partly through that that they were like, well, maybe we should be doing a little bit more with this Daily Grace thing that that we've got going. Yeah, they actually, man, I forgot about that. They, yeah, that they, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> No, that takes me back. I remember exactly what shitty apartment in Brooklyn I was living in at the time. Um, that they you had could kind see of Russia through the window. Yeah, yeah, they had reached out. I remember being like, "Hey, this Sarah Palin thing is big right now. I think you could do an impression of mm -hmm, it." Mm -hmm. And I was making five videos a week, so it was like there was so much content to be made that I was like, "Sure, I'll give it a go." Yeah. And uh, I am a terrible impressionist, absolutely <laughs> awful. And so I was like, I'll do the best I can do within the range of skill sets that I have. And it was pretty bad, but because it was topical, it was uh, more watched than most of the videos yeah. online. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that gave me understanding of the ability to take topical things and, and, and use them as comedy content. Mm -hmm. um, also gave me the understanding that bad impressions maybe are part of my toolbox now. <laughs> as long as you know that you're not getting a spot on SNL impression, you're getting a really, yeah. uh, I'm finding one trope about this person and gonna blow it up uh, <laughs> kind of thing. But it was also at that time that those videos were only living on my damn channel's website and not on YouTube. And so there was a big push about two years into that content creation to that we all saw, oh, an audience is actually on, on YouTube. So mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. should put um, this product on YouTube and see how it does. And so the ability to put the Daily Grace program on YouTube and still it was you know, within the zeitgeist of how everyone was creating. It was literally me by myself with a camera and my own editing tools every day uploading. So the channel was organically from me as a solo content creator. Unbeknownst to everyone else, the channel was owned by this company right. behind me and I was just being paid like a hired actress for it. But hmm. the Even way though you were also working as an editor. <laughs> right. Uh, the way in which the content was constructed was the same way that every other content creator in the space was making content by themselves, for themselves. And um, that's eventually what led me to leave my damn channel is to own my own content, which was all from my brain and hands anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it makes me wonder this idea of characters and um, 
realizing like, oh, maybe one of the tools in my creative tool belt is like doing bad impressions mm-hmm. is how much was the appeal of being a solo video creator? It strikes me in the way you're describing it that it was it it must have seemed like an opportunity to kind of have both things like to get to be yourself mm-hmm. and in your home and like um yeah, but also to get to be a version of yourself that is like you know i can I can talk to the people in the front seat too <laughs> to clunkily uh, go back to the the Cartman store, yeah yeah the the Initial, like, I think it was a discovery over time of realizing I just want to make people laugh. So every day I'm trying to figure out an idea. And a lot of what really helped me and I think was an inherent product of the Internet is like I would go on. These were big Tumblr days. Huge. Tumblr Uh, was the Tumblr was a primary platform. I remember spending all my time there. Uh uh And so I would ask every day on Tumblr for people's um, thoughts of what uh, what they wanted to see. Like, I'm going to make something tomorrow. What should I make? I'm going to review something tomorrow. I mean, it's how I learned about what One Direction was, was that Tumblr told me, look at One Direction. And I thought it was like a compass or something. I was like, what is this? And so unbeknownst to me, because I was trying to obviously make an audience feel included, but I also wanted to be making content that they would enjoy. But also my creative bandwidth could only think of so many ideas. And that interaction with an audience where they felt like they were part of the creative process was kind of this like happy accident that I think made audiences at the time really more involved and really more wanting to subscribe and become part of that community because they were in it with me every day. It wasn't like there's this quiet secret production company and then all you see is the final product every day. They would see Mm -hmm. the initial idea and then they would see the final product. And so you really felt like you were connected to these creators and a lot of other creators were doing the the same thing. Um, And so it, it began to give me permission to play with a lot of things and also began to give me permission that I didn't have to play with traditional, I didn't have to like come up with a bunch of characters that like a lot of other comedians were doing. I didn't have to work on impressions. I didn't have to do all of these other things that I didn't necessarily enjoy doing, nor did I feel like confident um, in making. And so it gave me more permission to be myself and Mm -hmm. that lent itself to the authentic kind of growing of like the daily grace and grace Helbig sort of persona. But then over time, obviously you stay like so stuck in that one area. And as human beings, we all evolve and grow and you all, I mean, you could see in your own interpersonal relationships when you know someone that's just like stuck in the past or like has not evolved as a human being, you just get this kind of feeling and audiences, I think, and myself included, started to feel like, oh, I'm, I kind of have plateaued in this one sort mm. of major area of who I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I guess that's where we get to that that thing we were talking about earlier. That you, there's this pressure to yoke yourself to mm-hmm. a to a persona to use um, uh, a very yeah. simplified version of a term that I know you have a more sophisticated understanding of that has to kind of remain fixed in a certain way when it is our nature as people yeah. to to grow and expand 
yeah, it's also that it becomes almost like this cartoon character. I see so mm. many similarities lately too and just sort of the religious structures around content creation online. I mean, hmm. people are called creators. They have followers. They um, ever I'm dabbling in those kind of very lighthearted ideas <laughs> about the whole internet space. Um, but there's, you start in the formula of content creation, it became these like, okay, you have taglines and we make merch that has like our certain iconography on it. And we um, have certain things that we like. And like if, if I went and did live shows, people would come and they would give me like Baileys always because I had mentioned Baileys <laughs> in a bunch <laughs> of videos or they'd give me these very like certain sort of tokens that made up the like Grace Helbig starter pack, if mm -hmm. you will. And mm -hmm. that stuff was always so like sweet and fun, but then it only sort of solidified this very sort of superficial idea of who I was and how mm -hmm. I created and really sort of boxed me in, in like, these are the, the taglines I say, mm -hmm. these are the kind of jokes I make, these are the um, topics I talk about, mm -hmm. these are the fashions I review, and this is like everything I know to do and so if you wanted to do anything outside of it, that made you question like, well, that's not part of this umbrella of brand. Yeah. And that's a very, you get to realize like, oh, but I'm a human. I'm not a brand. I am, but I'm also like, these two things can be happening at the same time. Yes. And that was my, my struggle of just like reconciling those two things. Um, and I think for a lot of creators, you come to like different points where you realize like, who am I? What am I doing? And okay, th this and you see a lot of creators kind of like sign off for a bit. And mm -hmm. I think it's like that's when they've reached a point where like, I got to go. I got to go. <laughs> I yeah. gotta, what I'm doing here doesn't really serve like who I am yeah. uh, for one reason or another. And that's where all of the introspection starts to come in. Well, it, it's it's very fascinating, this idea that a, a comedy often, I think, comes out of the tension between expression and repression. You know, mm, like mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes we find our most appealing comedic voice when we are expressing things that are uncomfortable to say. Yeah. But that can quickly become a substitute for actually working on that discomfort. Um, yeah. Which introduces like a... this new question, like, what happens when you actually start to go do that work? Like... Where does the comedy go? <laughs> oh, that's, what, I mean, that's what I've been going through. I feel like I've been, I, I lived in this very serious or this very silly world. And then I went to school and things got really serious. And now I'm starting to remind myself that's not that serious. Like there's this <laughs> trickster archetype element that I, I want to reconnect with. And I want to find the silliness again, because that is such a huge part of my world. But uh, not, not recognizing the, the tension. I think I also just started to become very self-deprecating and like that became my go-to sense of humor for mm -hmm, a while. Mm -hmm. And that's when you realize like, oh, the call's coming from inside the house. <laughs> like she's clearly, <laughs> like when you see people that they're like so constantly easy making fun of themselves so effortlessly that you're like, this is no longer that enjoyable to watch someone be so mean to themselves yeah. so effortlessly. Yeah. And I think that really started to become clear to me that I'm like, oh, this is no longer just like a funny haha -ha little thing. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think I'm unconsciously signaling to myself, like, we got some shit rumbling mm -hmm. below the surface that we got to go 
handle and therapy has been an absolutely incredible thing recommended to yes. anyone in any shape and form that yes. they can get it Amen. um and that was a huge part for me therapy in general just like reaching out to another person mm -hmm. and asking for help in a way that i couldn't help myself i was mm -hmm. so conditioned of doing everything myself that that trickled over to my like you know emotional personal world of like mm -hmm. i can think my way out of it and yeah. it turns out you can't do that all the time. Totally. Well, I, I have never thought about this before until this conversation, but mm -hmm. that I that idea of reaching out, like, here are some yeah. things I know I need to work on, that is a form of comedy, right? Like, a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of times that's yeah. where the best sketch Ask material... Ask me for a suggestion from the audience, <laughs> basically. I go to my therapist, I say, give me one word yeah. that comes to mind when you see me today. Yes. And we'll go from there. I will now fill this next hour with <laughs> original content. Yeah. yeah. But, like, you're... So, uh, it makes sense that these signals get crossed, except mm -hmm. that an, an audience is often rewarding you for... Um, asking for help, not doing the work. Um, yeah, it's hard to, especially when you do comedy, like to be vulnerable in a way that's not as funny mm -hmm. is really difficult. There was also this tension too that the internet created this space where, you know, people that are incredibly transparent with their lives online and showing you every aspect of them is very fascinating to watch. Look, I'm a reality TV junkie. And mm -hmm. so getting a glimpse into the interpersonal lives of people I don't really know is fascinating. Yeah. Um, but also I have always been a bit more reserved and private about like the actual struggles because I didn't want that to compromise the comedy and I didn't want to be... Mm -hmm suddenly put in a new box of like, oh, she's now the girl that's just like healing and working on herself. <laughs> <laughs> but these things can all work together. Mm -hmm. It's just finding your balance with that. I do, my other kind of concern about the internet is like the sharing and connecting is incredible. But when we get into points of oversharing, in a sense for, for some sort of validation or connection, that mm -hmm. I think can also be a little tricky. And again, just comes down to like your own, personal relationship to how you want to relate online. Well, this is another thing that you have said publicly that I thought was really, again, really wise is that it's very trendy to talk about how you're working on your mental health and how mental <laughs> yeah. health matters. Um, yeah. We went from hustle culture to healing culture. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it strikes me in the context of the way we're talking about this that saying, you know, saying... I really care about mental health and you should too. Um, and then maybe oversharing about it or sharing about it in a way where you're not actually saying anything, but are kind of getting credit for talking about mental health. Yeah. Sure. Maybe it's net good ultimately. So I don't want to denigrate it too much, but it is a version of that same impulse to ask the audience to reward you for being on a certain wavelength. Yeah. It because it's, it's so tough, right? Because it's like, it is so trendy because it is important. And I think the internet was the first place that I ever felt an understanding of anxiety. And I mm. ever heard other creators talk about anxiety for the first time with without trying to be funny and with 
really just being genuine. And that really connected with me because I always felt nervous constantly, all mm -hmm. the time. And I just chalked it up to like, you know, I am not that social and I want to, you know, perform and just like performance is always nerve wracking mm -hmm. and you want to do mm -hmm. a good job. Um, but it was a little deeper than that. And so being able to hear creators, I remember hearing Zoella, this beauty influencer way, way back in like 2009 or 2010, first start to talk about her anxiety. And that blew up because so many young people were like, that's exactly how I feel. And that was a beautiful moment in which the internet was able to foster this connection and this understanding between real human beings about real feelings that they couldn't have a length, they didn't have a language around beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that is really important, I think. And then we get into this like kind of gray area where some people I think manipulate these sort of authentic conversations around mm -hmm. mental health for the purpose of, of views or, or eyes or whatever it might be. And there's yeah. the whole healing world online. I follow a lot of, you know, creators that are like gurus or spiritual or like helping <laughs> in these self-help categories. And some I think are interesting and some don't give me as great feelings. Um, and <laughs> It's a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I just question some integrity. But it, yeah. again, like if it's working to connect for people, then who am I to judge that? It's like my own personal connection to it. But I, I think it's very, again, intoxicating to share really interpersonal parts of your life. And then that become this thing of like, well, I just need to share more and share more. This is yeah. what people want. And you see a lot of these like, people who vlog on a daily basis that show every aspect of their lives that have different crises or get canceled for different things because this oversharing has now created an issue in some way, shape or form. Yeah. So I, I, I'm trying to find like the balance point between like sharing vulnerability and advocating mental health. Like uh, conversations like this are great because one we're making content but two selfishly i'm like i want to talk to sam about self-help and how he's doing and see how this goes oh totally no 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 i well i appreciate that and i and i mean it's a it's a real privilege to talk to you about this because in addition to all of these like very real insights that you are sharing that are smart in and of themselves grace there are few people who have the authority to speak on this that you do i mean there are there are just very few people who have been on on the journey that you have been on and it and it's to so to hear you recognizing the importance of this journey that as you kind of put it for a while you were feeling all this pressure had to keep expanding ever outward and to realize yeah. that the next phase of the journey will be enabled by a journey inward <laughs> yeah um is really yeah, it's a, i think it's really it, that is medicine that's medicine for a lot of people thanks thanks, Thank thanks man i really appreciate that we're gonna step away for one more quick break here folks so you can take a deep breath and we'll be back with more Grace Helbig on The Midnight Disease. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Can I ask you about... A what strikes me as a really remarkable moment in your career as a video creator, which mm-hmm. is the video that you put up after Nicole Arbor did her Dear Fat People video. Yeah, um, yeah that was one of the... I remember she put up this video that was very uh, negative towards um, fat people, mm-hmm. and it was just so righteously and aggressively mean... Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, in my opinion, coming from a place of, uh, just addicted to spectacle and salation and and wanting Mm -hmm. attention versus wanting to make a point. And the byproduct of trying to make a salacious point is really hurting people, um, in general. And it bothered me very much and was one of the first sort of, uh, it was in that sort of era where I was coming to terms with my own sense of inherent responsibility mm-hmm. on these platforms. And I didn't sleep all night. I struggled with a very intense eating disorder in uh, college mm-hmm. and into my like young post-college years. And I knew how, um, how chaotic my thinking was around it and how triggered I was. I could only imagine that a lot of other people were and it was something that was obviously so personal and something that I could speak to from a very experienced mental place with it um, that was still struggling and you know never really goes away and it just kind of manifests in a lot of different areas of your own mental health mm-hmm. and I as someone that was a blonde funny girl online at the time and this other blonde funny girl was trying to tear down people that I felt like I wanted to protect yeah. and that I loved and that I um, was so grateful for their, um, you know, appreciation of anything I was putting out there. I felt like I need to say something. Um, and it also was one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm breaking like some fourth wall. It felt like in a way yeah. of addressing this, that this is goes outside of what my normal comedy content is. And I don't want to be means i don't want to match mean with being mean Mm -hmm. i want to be able to speak to her like a human being Mm -hmm. um because she's not speaking to people like they're people yeah Uh, and it was important for me and it was very i was just riddled with anxiety the whole night before and made tried to make a video a couple times and deleted it and then just like posted it i think i went to bed (laughs) after for 
for a long time <laughs> uh, because it just felt, again, so vulnerable mm -hmm. to put an opinion out there that wasn't just a fluffy comedy perspective of something. Right. Uh, but it felt important at the time, and um, I'm happy that I did it. I was also in the middle of writing a book about style and beauty and coming to terms with wanting my ability to find comedy in a very like healing medicinal way really affected the way in which I treated appearance and my body and myself mm -hmm. in the world. Um, and I thought this woman was weaponizing mm -hmm. the, the comedy that I found so healing. And it, uh, I just wanted to say something to this person. Yeah. <laughs> well, two things that really stick out to me about that video are one that you are very generous to her in the way that you address her. You say, Nicole, like, you seem like a smart person. You seem like yeah. a funny person. I'm willing to give you... You don't say, I'm willing to give you. That's me putting on words sure, sure, on sure. what you said. But your attitude seems to be like, I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt that this was not an exercise in pure hate or just like a cynical attempt to, to garner fame. But, it, but you say it does seem like you did not think about the impact that, mm -hmm. that this would have. And um, it just struck me as so interestingly at odds with the, the Grace comedic persona who, who again, and I know it was a persona, but who's yeah. the, the impetus behind that persona was often like, I don't really know what the right thing to say is. And you said something that was just so the right yeah. thing to say. <laughs> well, I think it's the internet, you know, made me feel at home, made me feel like I was a person mm -hmm. that had mm -hmm. a place mm -hmm. and that I had a community and eating and body image was something that I knew behind the scenes I had directly struggled with. Mm -hmm. And so it was something I could speak very directly and emotionally about because it, I was in the audience, like I was an audience member of this person that was attacking this very, um, a very difficult topic. And so it like, I felt like I would be a fraud knowing what I had struggled with and knowing how much I had been through and knowing that I had always felt afraid of actually revealing that to an audience at the time mm -hmm. and having been working on this other book about this specific thing at the time it just felt like this weird synchronicity of like here's a moment to be able to um insert yourself in a good way your intentions are to bring awareness that this is bigger than just a silly funny upload of a video and if i'm asking her to treat people like people i need to do the same and treat her like a human being that's complex mm. and has thoughts and feelings so wow. i would be a contradiction if I just sass mouthed her and cursed her off and called it a day like you have if I'm asking for her to treat people with respect I have to do the same for her um, and it was also at the era where there was a lot of like salacious sort of content being produced for the sake of views rather than integrity of content yeah um, and that's something that's like not something I can take on as a whole, but this <laughs> very small sort of thing that affected me directly felt really important. And sometimes, you know, you feel these like 
pangs inside of you that you're like, I can't drop this. It's like, I can't go to sleep. There's something in me that is calling me to do this right now. And I need to answer that. And whatever comes of it, I just also wanted the audience that I had at the time to know that I don't agree with this and that there is a level of older sister wanting to protect these young people that might feel attacked by this, that there's someone that stands with them Mm -hmm. and a community that they can feel safe in. Um, And so it was, yeah, it it felt like it was breaking the persona, but also revealing a bit more complexity to the persona for an audience that might not have uh, inherently known that well and this is the other thing that that stands out to me about it is in the context of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago it's not like you put out this video and then pivoted the entire channel to be right i am now grace helbig like body i had an eating disorder here we go right yeah exactly it was uh it was meant to it was meant to just try and check her in a way of being like, hi, I, your stuff doesn't go up in a vacuum. I think for me, it was a, a helpful moment of giving myself permission to be more of myself online, to mm-hmm. drop the persona for a second and be able to do that. And it was wildly uncomfortable, and I very rarely do that. <laughs> um, but it felt... It felt uh, it felt right. So then, in our in our last few minutes here, to come back mm-hmm. to um, what you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, and and coming to the end of your deep psychology and creativity program, and yeah, I wonder if you could give us, without it having to be definitive, mm-hmm. some sense of where you are on the continuum from Baby Grace in the back seat doing a Cartman impression to creating this persona online to stepping into the the waters of direct, raw emotional expression to this kind of mindful hiatus that you've been on where, what do you feel like you got out of these experiences in your program and where do you think it's kind of taking you? I... I'm very much in the grips of figuring that all out. But to use this car analogy, it feels like all of those people you just described are now all in the car together. And I can see, (laughs) I can see them all in the car. Whereas, you know, a lot of pop psychology and and depth psychology talks a lot about like inner child work, you know, as a, a huge means to discover and investigate and heal a lot of wounds that have been long standing over time. And I've done a lot of that work. And so you can see a lot of the metaphor that I, I have been taught to use and have used is that like you can see when the little girl is driving the car. Um, mm. And that's when you really need to recognize like okay the children shouldn't drive a car i recognize you're in this car um but we're not going to have you driving and i think Ah, my mm -hmm, my persona mm -hmm. was driving the car for a long time and so now there's a this now the personas may be in the passenger seat and and the little girls in the back seat and and whatever this version of me that's sort of this amalgamation of all of them is sort of driving um but we're all in it together right now and no one's getting kicked out of the car because they're all kind of facets of of me. 
they're all in the car together now where we're driving I'm not totally sure, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just sort of letting myself be okay, being a little uncomfortably still and really trying to listen to the calls for creativity that feel authentic and organic, trying to get reconnected to being a little silly again mm -hmm, and finding mm -hmm. humor in things and just sort of uh, enjoying the introspection as best I can. You know, it's amazing. I love this car imagery that you used for a couple reasons. One, I had never heard that idea of like, you don't want your inner child to be driving the car. And that's really profound and like makes me think about moments in my life when I feel out of control. It's like, well, maybe it's because I'm letting somebody who doesn't know how to drive drive. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's. It's like you didn't even know that they had taken the wheel. But yeah. when you like look and you recognize, you're like, oh, the kid's driving. Okay. Mm -hmm. Hey, honey, we're, I, <laughs> you're driving for a reason. You wanted my attention. Okay. Yeah. What, what's going Let me put you in the back seat and we'll have a conversation about this. You knew that I would have to pay attention to you if you seized the wheel of yes. the car. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think I'm uh, uh, getting behind the wheel again. We'll see. All right, so I mentioned before the interview that there has recently been another big development in Grace's life, which is that a few months after she and I recorded this conversation, she posted a new video on her YouTube channel. And this is how it started. Okay, I don't know how to do this, so we're just going to do this. I have breast cancer. I know. It's very shocking. It's very surreal. It doesn't sound real, but it's real. Grace goes on to say that her diagnosis has been described by her doctors as, quote, super beatable and super treatable, which is obviously such a blessing. And I'm so glad for her and for all of the people who care about and appreciate her work and presence and spirit in the world. That's obviously the most important thing. But in the context of this episode, I wanted to add that when I first saw this video, I thought it was really remarkable, given everything that she and I had talked about, that Grace had decided to make a video about this. And then you watch it, and there is that trademark Grace Helbig sense of humor. I even got my port placement in my arm yesterday, which is basically like a little nano pet looking device that they embed in the skin under your arm so that when you start chemo, you can just be hooked up to the machine, like a little Roomba in a charging station. So cute. But of course, it's grace. So it's not just that the video has a sense of humor. It has a sense of self. Laughing feels like it helps me breathe within a situation that I feel like I'm holding my breath. Like This is a very serious situation. I know that. But there's also some humor to be found here. So what's next? Well, this is my job now. I'm going to fight this little bitch of a thing in my left breast uh, as best and as strongly and as gracefully as I can, pun intended.
Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Grace Helbig for joining me on the show today. Check the show notes for links to Grace's videos, as well as the podcast she still does, This Might Get Weird, with Mamrie Hart. Grace, I and all of the Midnight Disease faithful send you our very best in your fight against the little bitch. And thank you for finding the strength to be a source of light and comfort to other people who are dealing with little bitches of their own. We'll be back on Friday with the first installment of Dingmantics, and we'll be back next week with another one of these great conversations. In the meantime, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you then, and until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.